The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good to see you guys all here. I have a couple of announcements for you. If you would, though, um, while I'm going through these, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, just stick your hand up nice and high and wave it around, and one of these fine gentlemen will make sure that you do have one. Um, If you don't own a Bible, that's a gift to you. And we just pray that the Lord would use that to teach you more and more about himself, his will, his plan for your life, his plan for the world, and would encourage you through it. A couple of announcements. First of all, Rogue Valley Mobile Pack meeting is coming up on July 26th. Um, That's going to be at the Hub. Our office is right over here. Jason Licato of Rogue Valley Valley Mobile Pack, they're working on that Feed My Starving Children program, putting together meals that go to starving and malnourished areas. It's a really cool thing they're doing. If you'd like to be a part of that, that meeting's on July 26th at 6 o'clock at the Hub, and Jason would love to have your help and involvement. Also, uh, next week, outdoor service and baptisms. July 31st at 10 a.m., we'll be doing an outdoor service here at the church, and we're having baptisms. You should should have gotten a uh, baptism pamphlet, flyer, whatever you want to call that, as you were coming in. If you've never been baptized, if you're interested in being baptized, you, your child, whoever the case may be, um, we would love it if you would fill that out and drop that off at the information table on the way out um, so that we can contact you and talk with you about that this week. And then uh, family camp signups end next Sunday. The signups are in the foyer. It's in uh, the end. Let's see when the actual family camp dates are. August 18th through the 21st at Lake of the Woods. And uh, I don't know if you guys have been seeing the forecast. If, if you've been like me, it's been sort of a mellow summer so far, right? Have you seen this week's forecast? You, you know what? When the fair comes to town, everything changes. You know that, right? Um, and so that's what's coming. It's going to be hot, but it'll be nice up at Lake of the Woods. Um, I think we were getting close to 40 families signed up for that. So basically church service here that Sunday will be a few of us in a little circle right down here in the front. Everybody else will be up there partying it up at Lake of the Woods. So uh, make sure you sign up for that. And then uh, one last uh, announcement. This is sort of a 911 call that we have here. Um, we are desperately in need of two volunteers, one male and one female for each our junior high and high school camp that are coming up here in the next couple of weeks. Um, Junior high camp is August 8th through the 11th. High school camp is August 4th through the 7th. And we desperately need both a male and female volunteer to hang out and help with the kiddos um, up at Mountain Lakes Bible Camp for those three days, each of those camps. So if you're available for that, could you please either leave your name and number at the information table, or if you know Pastor Jeremy or Pastor Mitch, um, just get a hold of them. Um, And we would love it if we could have some more help with that. Our camp is going to be a a fantastic time partnering with Community Bible Church in Central Point, good friends of ours. And we're really excited about what the Lord's going to do there. But uh, we need some help. So if you could do that, that would be fantastic. Um, Right now we are in Philippians chapter 3. In our verse-by-verse study through the book of Philippians, it's been, I don't know about you guys, it's been a really, this, this is a deep book. This is my favorite book in the Bible. This is the one that probably speaks to me the most, the one that I find myself drawn to, as I've said before, more than really any other book in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, um, with the, maybe the close exception of Genesis. This is my favorite book in the Bible. I love teaching it. And, and last week, we spent some time looking at kind of the focus, the point of everything that we're doing. Everything, and I don't mean just like in our Bible study, I mean right now in this room, or our, our Christian lives in general, this, this thing we call Christianity, we looked at what's the point of all of it. What should be the focus? What should be the goal of what we're doing as Christians? For some people, it's Bible knowledge. We should learn as much Bible as we can. Is that a good thing, church? Yes or no? It's a good thing. Is it the thing? No. Well, some would say, what about moral living? That's what it is. We're to be examples. We're to follow God's rule. Even Jesus, when he said, go into the world and make disciples, he said, teaching them to obey all things. And so the way we live, that's the point. Like, we should really focus on being that person living that way. Is that a good thing? Come on, wake up, church. Is that a good thing? Yes. Is it the thing? No, it's not the thing, though many would give their lives to that. What about good deeds? Justice. 
We need to serve those who are in need. We need to feed the hungry. We need to clothe the poor. We need to rescue those who are oppressed. That's our focus. We need to go and bring the kingdom of God to bear in the world around. That's what we need to do. Is that a good thing, church? It's a great thing. Is it the thing? No, it is not the thing. You're picking up on this. Last week, Paul kind of laid out sort of his godly resume. And maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's just sort of a conglomeration of all these things, that we should be moral people who know the Bible and are serving everyone around here. And those are good things, yes? This is not the point. It's not the main thing. And as we saw in the text in Philippians 3, Paul lines up this whole kind of resume, if you will, that he had had that had defined his spirituality, his godliness, if you will, for so much of his life. And he says, here's all the stuff that I did. And you know what it all is? It's garbage. It's dung. It's excrement. It's insert your much worse word for excrement. That's the word Paul uses. He says, it's nothing. It's garbage compared to what? knowing Jesus. That's the goal. That's the focus. Our focus isn't how we live. Our focus isn't even Bible knowledge. Even all of these things should exist to continue to point us to Jesus. He is the point. And he says, I count everything lost because of the greater worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I count them rubbish, refuse, excrement, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him and his righteousness. The whole point to what we're doing here today is that we might know Jesus. I hope that's why you come here. I hope that's why we gather together as the church. That we might draw closer to Jesus. Not that we might just learn something. Not that we might just enjoy some music. Certainly not that we might pay some form of penance to sort of make up for failures in our life. That we might impress God by our holiness. Look, God, we came to church. Be proud of us this week. But the goal of what we do is that we might know him. That Christ might be the focus. And then all those other things. Good deeds. Bible knowledge. All those things should be a byproduct that flows out of the reality that we know Jesus. Amen, church? Now here at Heritage, we we do what's called a contextual approach to understanding scripture. When when we're trying to study and learn from the Bible, we always want to take everything in context because it would be easy to just take a verse and let's just break down what the words mean. But maybe you remember this from when Todd Miles from Western Seminary came by. He came down about a year ago. He did a, a, a Bible interpretation workshop for us. And one of the things he said, and he's taught us and we were in class up there too, he said, look, words don't have meaning. Words have meanings. Context has meaning. So I'll give you an example. If I was to just say the word party, what does the word party mean? Well, depending on who you are or what you're doing or what context it's used, it can mean all sorts of things. Right now we got an election going on. There's all sorts of political party uh, posturing and arguing and, and all that kind of stuff. So it might mean political party. Um, maybe your child had a birthday yesterday and you were like, oh, we had a birthday party yesterday. That's what party means. Party it means our birthday party. Maybe some of you, you wouldn't raise your hand and admit this in church, but you come from that little seedy underbelly of the world and party means something much more illicit. Maybe refers to drug use or that whole counterculture. Do you party? Yeah, I party. But what, what, is, what does that mean? Well, context and how we use the word defines what the word actually means. And the same thing goes true to the scriptures in our study for scripture. We don't want to just take a verse, hold it up there and say, this is what this verse means without considering the greater context of what's going on in that passage. If you do that, you can miss the meaning and you can go the wrong direction with a text and end up saying something with it that the author never intended to say. There's a verse in our text today that people have done that very thing. And so here's what we're going to be doing this morning. Last week we went all the way through chapter 3, verse 12. Today we're really going to focus on verses 11 through 16. But because we want to understand the greater context and make sure that we're approaching this rightly, it becomes particularly important today that we back up. And so what I want to do is I'm going to start in chapter 3, verse 1, and just read through verses 16 together. Though our time today will be focused on 11 through 16, I don't believe you can even understand what those mean without the greater context. But I want to do it slightly differently today as we approach this. 
This is what I'd like to ask that we do. We haven't done this. I want to sort of institute this. This might become a thing. I'm just warning you in advance. If you want to search around for churches that don't do this, it's Christian calisthenics on a Sunday morning. Up, down, up, down, up, down. I remember that in the Baptist church. And they didn't do like worship all together. They would do like a song. Everybody sits down. Announcements. A song. Everybody sits down. Somebody reads a verse. A song. Pass the time. You're up, down, up, down. You walk out. They're like, oh, I had leg day. But, but here's what I want to do. In the church historically, um, I don't know if you guys know this, we are attached to a tremendous amount of really good and great history. Like what we're reading here in Philippians is a letter to an actual church, not really all that dissimilar from us in terms of why we get together. And the church is not just some individualistic thing. It's not even something where our Western experience defines what it means to be Christian. We are tied into history and saints and godly people that have served and strove for Jesus through centuries. And it's good for us at times to remember that and honor that. And rem- like, I don't, I don't know about some of you that, like, I know my mother-in-law is really into the liturgy that they have at, like, uh, Lutheran church services and some of those kind of things. And sometimes... I would look at it, especially early on, and I would go, it's just stupid. Everybody's like singing everything. We will now collect the offering. And I would just be like, dude, come on, man. You can't even sing. Stop. But there, sometimes there's history that it's good for us to remember that we're part of something much, much, much bigger than just Heritage Christian Fellowship. Much bigger than the church in Southern Oregon. Much bigger than the American church. When, when Mitch and I went down for this uh, pastor's conference about a week ago in Long Beach, California, we had this day where Acts 29 took all of us pastors over to Catalina Island just for the day, just to go hang out. They put us on a boat, sent us over there, and, and me and Mitch were walking around. It was a little awkward because it was a couple's retreat. It was supposed to be lead pastor and their wives, and I was there with Mitch. Um, and, and the reason was we had already paid for all this, we'd already sent the money in, we'd already reserved flights, all these kind of things, but um, as you guys know, my wife and I just recently adopted a five-year-old boy, and, and not knowing that at the time, we'd reserved all this other stuff, and then he ends up in our life, and it was just too soon for the two of us to take off, and no way were we taking him there, so my wife ended up staying home with him, and I was like, Mitch, come on, you're my date, which was almost awkward, because at first, I had a single king bedroom. And to the day of, they were like, I'm sorry, it's booked, that's all we got. And I'm like, all right, Mitch, um, I hope you can snuggle good. I don't know what to say, but we got there, it was, it was awesome, there was a cancellation, we got two beds. But they sent us to Catalina the next day, and so all these couples are getting together, they're going on bike rides, they're going snorkeling, and me and Mitch are like, well, let's just go do our own thing, it's a little awkward. And we, we found this church, the, the black family here at our church, that's not a racial comment. That's their name. Don't judge me. But they, they had, uh, well, we, we've just been on this topic lately. I just want to make sure. But um, they had told me about this church there and this pastor that they had met. And so, so we went there and we met, we met this guy. And oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. Pastor Enrique. Some of you guys saw. I put it up on social media. Picture him. So here's this guy. You think Catalina Island vacations and all this kind of stuff. But this guy lives, if you will, in the inner city, so to speak, there serving and ministering to what's largely a Hispanic population that lives there and works in the service industry. And as I'm talking with him, I'm starting to hear like, hey, so how can we pray for you? Tell us about your church and what I found. You know what I found out? The struggles they have, the things God's doing in them, the emphasis they have, it's the exact same things that we deal with here, just in a different context. Because we're all part of something so much bigger than us. And historically... When the church would get together, very few people actually had Bibles in their hands. Very few people. In fact, it was rare that you would have a copy of the scriptures. And so church gatherings were even much more important and much more treasured because that's where you had to go to be able to hear the word of God. You didn't have a printing press version of your Bible at home like we do. I mean, most of us have lots of copies of Bibles. But back in that day, no one did. And so they would come together and the church would come together. And this is what they do. They would stand, if you will. In honor of the reading of the word. And listen, it it, it was a couple of things. It was not just standing on the word of God, but it was in reverence to this thing that was not to be taken for granted. It was like, this is special. This is the word of God coming out. 
And the pastor would read the word of God. Now, just put yourself in that place. You can't just pick up a Bible and read it. You're standing here, gathered together, the body of Christ, hearing the word of God coming to you. It was a special thing. And so the pastor would read the passage that was to be looked at and studied and contemplated that day. And at the end of it, he would say, this is the word of the Lord. And the church would respond with, who knows it? Thanks be to God. And it wasn't just vain formality like it can become now. It was a genuine response of gratitude from the church of God that we have gathered together and heard the word of God. And so for us, it's so easy to take for granted what we have here. Do you realize what is in your hand? Do you know the blood that was spilt historically that we might have this in our hand? Do you know the grace of God that he would take the time to write his will, his plan, his love, and his grace to sinners such as us and grant us with this? What you hold in your hand truly is holy and special and not to be taken for granted. So I want us to just, in honor of the word of God, we're going to read Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. And then in in joining in, if you will, in the tradition of the church historically, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you're going to say, and you're not going to say, thanks be to God. What are we going to say? Thanks be to God. All right, let's see how we do. Philippians 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for evildoers and those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. But only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your word. We are so grateful for the gift and the blessing that we can open up and hear the words of the creator to us. What a gift. What a privilege. Father, we, for, we repent of times we've taken it for granted. And Lord, I, I pray that even as we stand now with heads bowed, Lord, may we stand on the truth of your word, but bowed in submission to it. May you, our Lord, our King, speak to your people. God, may you, for some of us, reignite an awe, a love, and a passion for your word. May you call us back to our first love. May you help us, Lord, that we might reorient and remember, Lord, what this is all about, what's really important in our lives. Lord, what we're really asking, may you turn our eyes to you, Jesus, this morning. So God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh, my King, my Rock, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So uh, you may not know this. I'm a fisherman. Um, I, some of you are chuckling because you're like, duh. Like, I, I'm not just a fisherman, though. 
I'm a fly fisherman. I, I won't lie, there are times I have looked down with a quiet or vocal snobbery at those who are not fly fishermen. I love fly fishing. I've gotten into it. I've been doing it for years and years. And, and one of the things that I love the most about fly fishing is that, that you tend to get out into areas where you're sort of alone. You're like away. Like I, I never go fishing at the expo ponds. I never go fishing, even at Applegate Lake or Immigrant Lake, even um, uh, Lost Creek. I tend to, if I want to go to a lake, I go way up high, up into the Cascades, East Lake, Polina, Newberry Crater, places like that. Like, there's just something about it, when, especially when you're a fly fisherman, you tend to chase trout or steelhead. And that takes you, if you're fishing uh, lakes or still water, it takes you, tends to take you way out of town to higher altitudes where some of those fish live. Or... You end up floating the Rogue River, which is kind of kind of what's in season right now. This for a fly angler in in southern Oregon, we're coming into prime time right now. I mean, like this is the time when you get excited to get up at 4 a.m. As bizarre and uh, uh, sadistic as that sounds, I'm I'm a little bit weird. I'm a night owl who wants to sleep late, and then God made me a pastor and a fisherman, so sleeping late has nothing to do with either one of those. So it's kind of like God's way of, I guess, keeping me on my toes. I don't really know. But, but we're coming up on that season where the steelhead begin their 156-mile journey up the Rogue River from the ocean to up into the area, usually up the hatchery area, up Lake of the Woods, or not Lake of the Woods, what's that lake? Lost Creek Lake, the dam area up there. They used to go much further from that. You know it's called Lost Creek for a reason. That river used to keep going on up through there, but now we've shut them off and said, here, no further, you shall not pass, whatever. That's where they stay. And, and steelhead are remarkable animals. They're steelhead and salmon, two different kinds of fish, but steelhead is like a mix between a trout and a salmon. It's basically a trout that acts like a salmon. And so they're born here in the river. They're really little. In fact, in the Rogue River, unless it's cutthroat, almost any trout you catch is actually a juvenile steelhead. And at a certain point, those fish make their way all the way down, 156 miles from Lost Creek Lake, 156 miles of river to the ocean. They go out into the ocean where food supplies are much more abundant, nutrients, shrimp, things like that, proteins, much more abundant. And fish that go to the ocean tend to get really, really big. If you've ever noticed, if you've ever gone fishing, those of you that do, at places like Lost Creek, or, uh, yeah, Lost Creek Lake or Applegate Lake, though you can find bigger fish, the average fish you catch tends to be kind of small, just little hatchery fish, right? But you know why? Well, if you notice in the summer, as the lake levels drop, what, is, what do you see? What does it expose? Mud. There's no plants. There's no bushes. There's no none of those things. It's just mud because they're man-made lakes. And so because it's just mud, the insect life is really, really minuscule. There's not enough food in there to really make those fish get really big. But steelhead are different. They go to the ocean. Salmon are different. They go to the ocean and they just pig out on hometown buffet out in the ocean and get big. It's why ocean fish are so big. It's also why they fight so strong. But then at a certain point in this, and it's a miracle of God even and of itself, those fish at a certain time of year going on right now, their nose begins to point back to where they were born, back to where they're from. And so right now, those fish are going, they go out like this. They're coming back as like five, six pound. Everybody's like, oh, I caught a 15 pound steelhead in the Rogue River. No, they didn't. They're all lying. They're all about like this. They're making their journey now 156 miles back up the river to where they go. So this is a really exciting time if you're a fly fisherman. Like this is, the season's coming. In fact, September and October especially is flies only on the Rogue River. It's like our river for two months. We love it. And I love going out there and fishing. I love going to the rivers, the Klamath River, Northern California. There's just something about getting out there, getting away from the things that go on day to day. It's, it's not even that far away, but it's like a world apart. I even had a privilege just this week, there was a visiting missionary from a, a part of the world that is insanely dangerous, a part of the world that you and I wouldn't go to in a million years. And he, his wife, and his two-year-old child are missionaries there. They're home on break, and we got to take him out on the river and just enjoy some time catching some steelhead and hanging out. It's just there's something about getting away. But one of the cool benefits of getting away and getting out like that that I've got to enjoy over the years is when you go out into the wilderness, whether it's fishing or whatever, you get opportunities around here to see things that sadly most people that even live right here in the Rogue Valley never take the time to get out there and actually see. Like, I don't know if you guys realize this. I've said this before. Like, we live in an area 
where people everywhere else will work 50, 51 weeks a year so that they can take their one or two weeks off a year and come here and experience the things in the woods, the things out around us that we live around every single day. But familiarity breeds contempt, and we tend to just forget about the things that are going on. We just sort of sit here. I'll give you an example. How many of you have not gone for years to Crater Lake, and then you go back up? You didn't go, because we live here. We've seen it. It's old hat. And then you go up there, and when you see it again, you're just like, man, I forgot how glorious this thing is. You know what I'm talking about? Like, we take some of that stuff for granted, don't we? Just like we do the Word. Well, getting outside, there's things that you get to see that you just wouldn't see if you're here. I have seen some of the craziest stuff, whether it's fishing out on the ocean or fishing out here. I've seen some of the craziest things in the world, like Bigfoot. Now, um, another thing that those of you that have been around for a while may know about me, and those of you that are new, it may scare you off, is like, I love Bigfoot. I love Bigfoot. But here's the weird thing about me. I don't believe in Bigfoot. I love Bigfoot. Don't believe in Bigfoot. What I am is like, I really want to believe in Bigfoot. Like, I wish there was a Bigfoot. I think the world would be so much more interesting if there was Bigfoot. But there's just, come on, there's just, I'm sorry you believe it. There's not Bigfoot, okay? But I've seen people that if you were to see them from a distance, you would be like, that's a Bigfoot. Okay, so I've seen that. But more specifically, I've been out on a boat with hammerhead sharks swimming 10 feet from, like 10, 12 foot sharks swimming 10 feet from our boat, just circling around, having to try to catch tuna and dodge the shark. They call that paying the tax man. I've seen that. I've been out, I've seen a, a just massive bald eagle come and take a 17 inch rainbow that I had just unsuccessfully released off the water, right there in front. Like, I thought it was going to hit my daughter. We had rods. We are going to smack that bird right out of the sky because it came swooping in. Pick up the fish, like, right there next to the boat and fly away. I've seen bear. I've seen bobcats. I've seen rattlesnakes. I've seen eagles. I've seen gray whales. I've seen blue whales. I've seen sea lions. I've seen otters. I've had beavers slap the water with their tail and scare me to death at 5 a.m. when I'm in the river. Like, I've experienced and seen all sorts of, really, almost all the wildlife that Southern Oregon possibly has to offer. But I'll tell you something I've never, ever, ever seen. I have never seen a healthy fish drifting downstream. Never seen it. I've seen really unhealthy fish drifting downstream. One one thing steelhead are different with salmon. When salmon come up to spawn, it's kind of like the last hurrah. You guys know that, right? You ever gone up to the Rogue River in August and you're like, oh, this is going to be such, or not August, I'm sorry, October. You're like, this is going to be such a beautiful day. We're going to hike along the river. And you get up there and you're like, it reeks up here. Let's go home. Like the river actually becomes full of dying, rotting, decaying fish. These big salmon, they get gray and spotty and nasty. And if you're actually fishing and you hook one, you're like, ugh. I don't even want to touch this thing. It's just gross. And when they finally keel over, you just see them drifting down the river. The steelhead right now aren't like that. They're swimming. They have a focus. They know where they're going. The tails never stop moving. They're not passive. They don't find like a hole in the river at mile 50 and just go, this is good enough. I'm just going to hang out right here. They know where they're going. And they are constantly and 100% focused on getting to mile 156. That's the holy land, if you will. Actually, the end of the water in the Rogue River is referred to as the holy water. And those fish never stop swimming. They never stop pointing upstream. They are constantly moving and pressing on towards the direction that they're going. Church, If Jesus Christ is our focus, if we know that it's all about Jesus, and we get saved and we get Jesus, what does life look like for us from now until the time that Jesus returns? Well, here we're in Philippians so far, this this book where Paul is writing to a church that he planted. This is his baby. And Philippians is a unique book compared to a lot of the other letters that Paul writes because Philippians is the only book that Paul doesn't write at some point in the letter to chew out the church for stuff that they're doing wrong. 
Not once, anywhere in the letter is he chastising them for anything. He declares like his incredible deep love and affection for them. But the rest of the letter, he's not chewing them out, but he's encouraging them. As a father would talk to his child, he's like encouraging them that he wants them to grow up into maturity. He wants them to press on and keep on, to not be satisfied to just stay baby Christians, as you see him write in other places. But he's encouraging them along their way, even though, as we'll see, life is getting more and more difficult for the church in Philippi. This is what he writes. So what does that look like? Like, the Christian that's there, like not the, believe, the new believer, not the one that just, just now entered the mouth of the river. We've been saved for a little while. We're just sort of figuring things out. But like the one that's there, mile 156, what does that look like for the believer in Christ? Um, well, the good thing about Paul is Paul, like any Bible teacher should be, Paul never is just writing to talk to people just about them. Like Bible teachers should be different than anyone else that teaches any other thing. New age philosophies, um, self-help stuff. Bible teachers aren't gurus who are at a place where they've figured everything out and now they're trying to give you advice so that you can get to where they are. It is rare that there's ever been a sermon that I've preached to you guys. If you ever felt conviction from any message I've ever preached before, I'll tell you this much, you can rest assured that same sermon put me on my knees in my office before I preached it here. Because no, no Bible teacher has these things nailed. Christ is our only perfect one, but I'm giving away the sermon. So Paul, he's gonna use chapter three and is using chapter three as we've just seen. He's recanting something of his Christian experience to lay out for the people of Philippi. This is the guy who says, follow me as I follow Christ. He makes no bones about encouraging people to follow him, but he's also very clear about the fact that he's not there yet, that he's learning, that he's in progress as well. So as he's speaking to this church in Philippi, trying to nurture them, trying to encourage them on their way, what does he say? Well, he says, like we saw last week, I just want to know him. That's what it's all about. I just want to know him. Verse eight, indeed, I count everything as lost for the surprising worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. We saw that last week. The whole point is Christ. Like if you get moral living and don't have Jesus, you lose, right? If you get Bible knowledge but don't have Jesus, you lose. None of those things will save you. Even Paul's own story would say, hey, I was a rabbi. I knew the Bible better than anybody, but I didn't have Christ. So the whole point is Jesus. This is what it's about. But when you start to push in, specifically really on verses 10 through 16, Paul says something odd in here if you really stop to think about it. Now, this is Paul. And what does he say? That I may know him. Is that past tense or future tense? He's not, he's not saying, I know him. I met him so many years ago and I know him. But, but he says this. The whole point's Jesus. Then he's like, I, I'm, I'm just hoping to know him. Huh? Paul? He goes on and says, and the power of his resurrection and share in his suffering, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain resurrection from, from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And then he focuses one more time. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Now think about this for a second. In this text, Paul points out Three things that he really wants, he's really striving for. He says, first of all, that he wants the power of his resurrection, that I might know the power of the resurrection of Christ. Now, Paul doesn't just want power that he might be powerful. Elsewhere, Paul teaches that the, the resurrection power, that same spirit, that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is actively at work in our lives. And so Paul's not saying, I want power that I might be powerful. He's saying, I want that power that could bring a dead man to life at work in me, taking this old man, this dead man, if you will, and changing him and bringing the life of Christ to bear in me. Then he also says, and I want to share in his sufferings. And this isn't some weird machismo or uber spirituality. Like you can actually see today regarding some of these things. 
One of the things we hammer here more than anything, or I, I say we, I hammer here more than anything, tends to be the prosperity gospel. The understanding that if you are saved, if you're experiencing God's blessings, that he, li- he desires that we live in prosperity and constant happiness and wealth and all those things today. It's just not what the gospel teaches. Jesus teaches really clearly in this world you will have trouble. That following him is a rejection of this life and living for a completely different life. But there, there's a pendulum swing to that that is often called the, the gospel of suffering or the poverty gospel. If this is prosperity gospel, there's a poverty gospel that says, you know what really defines us as Christians and shows our spirituality, the more we suffer, the more we give away, the more poverty we live in, that's what brands us as Christians. And so we should even act like we're not enjoying life right now. We should just walk around moping all the time, just kind of become monks in Southern Oregon, just be like, well, I'm just carrying my cross. When Paul in this letter over and over and over, I mean, the whole theme of this book is joy no matter what. As you're going to see here in a couple of weeks, he's going to say rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. This is what he calls us to do. No, no, what Paul is saying is, hey, it's the same theme. Christ was a man of suffering, Isaiah 53 says. And I want to be like him. I, w- I want to be united with him. I've seen what the cross did for my life and I want to grab my own cross and follow the one who would do this on my behalf. See, in both of these, whether we're talking about the power of his resurrection or whether we're talking about the fellowship of sufferings, the goal is the same. It's all wrapped up in what is really the third thing that he's saying he wants. I I want to know him. I want to be closer to him. I want to be able to suffer like him so I can be closer to him. I want to experience what he experienced. I want to walk the road he walked. I want to live the way he lived. I want that same power that raised him from the dead active and moving in me because not because I want to be powerful, not because I just want to suffer like some sort of um, sicko that just wants to self-abuse. He would teach against this in Colossians. No, I want these things because I want to know Christ. But this is the weird thing. Paul's known Jesus for over 30 years. And and like, this is Paul here. He met Jesus in a way we can't even comprehend. Like Jesus came right there, boom, knocked him off his high horse, literally. Like he met Jesus face to face. He was taught by Jesus. His mission in life was verbally given to him by Jesus. This is Paul. I want to know Christ. Paul, you know Christ in 30 years. This is Paul who's planting churches all over the reachable world that are going to change the course of human history. Like the father of church planting, this is Paul. Our church here exists today because of Paul. I want to know him? How do you not know him, Paul? I mean, Paul, maybe you don't know this yet. You're one of the apostles. And I know you're not yet aware, but you're actually writing the Bible as we speak. And he's going, I'm not there. Do you hear the humility in that? As he writes to this church, he's their spiritual father. He said, I'm not there. And he presses in twice, like I have not yet obtained this. This is so important. I just want us to focus on this. This is a, a one point sermon today. Again, two weeks in a row. You're welcome. In the New Testament, Jesus says that we are the light of the world, right? So the church is the light of the world, but there's all kinds of light. There's all sorts of light. And for Paul, we are not just a random light bulb set up in the middle of the room. You know light bulbs, they just send light kind of everywhere. It's not really focused. It falls where it falls. It lights up, you know, just kind of randomly anything that happens in the room. But for Paul, that's not exactly the kind of light he seems to portray when you look at his light. He's more like a laser. Now, I got to say this carefully because we have people in our congregation that both own and work at a laser manufacturer. So I'm hoping my science is right. And if I'm wrong, I'll fix it next week. But lasers aren't random light. It's focused. It's concentrated. It has a very definite beginning and a very definite focus on the other end, a point, if you will, that it's headed towards. It's a focused, concentrated light. And this is more like who Paul is. Paul has a very definite origin, does he not? Nobody preaches the gospel like Paul. 
This is who I used to be, but this is who I am now. When light hit me and blinded me, everything changed. As Tim Keller, um, uh, Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors, has said, Christianity isn't something you take up. Christianity takes you up. And this is who Paul was. Like, Paul, Mr. Religion High Horse, gets taken down by Christ, and everything changes at that moment. Everything in his life is completely and totally reoriented around a single point. Think about what Paul says. He says things like, hey, my previous life is garbage, because now I want this. What he's saying is something happened to me, and my entire life has now been reoriented around this one thing. What happened to Paul? Jesus happened to Paul. He encountered Jesus Christ. He didn't encounter faith. He didn't encounter a religion. He didn't encounter a philosophy. He encountered a man, the risen king, Jesus Christ. And when he saw Jesus and who he is, everything in his life reoriented. And now he is with laser-like focus. I am all about Jesus. I am all about the kingdom of God. And that's how Paul writes. Everything Paul writes is always written with that end in mind. I was born of Jesus and I'm waiting for Jesus. He writes to the Thessalonians, man, one day Jesus is coming back. A trumpet's going to blow. The dead will be awakened and raised with Christ. Everyone else is going to get caught up. Man, we're going to be back with Jesus. Okay, Paul, what are you living for? Are you living for that day? Is he coming now? Paul would say, I don't know. I don't know if I'll be the dead guy that gets raised. I'm in jail right now. Things aren't looking great. Or I don't know if I'm going to be set free and I'm going to be raptured. I'm going to be with Christ in glory. I don't know how it's going to work, but here's the one thing I know. Jesus. What about all this other stuff, Paul? Jesus. That's my laser focus. And the one thing Paul will not do, he is not stagnating. Paul refuses to stagnate. Paul refuses to get to a point in life where he's like, It's mile 56. Water's nice here. This is pretty. I'll just hang out right here. No, for Paul, he's like, that's my focus, and I've not yet obtained where I'm trying to go. And I'm going to go. Remember, he's writing in prison. And he's still going, I'm not giving up. I'm going to press on. I want you to press on. We're going to keep striving for this and keep striving for this. Paul, you don't even know if you're going to live tomorrow. Doesn't matter. I will pursue him in jail. I will pursue him in life. I will pursue him in death. Nothing else matters in life but pursuit of Jesus Christ. That's who I'm chasing. And I want you to look, listen to what he said. And this is where I told you before, there's a verse in here that can get taken out of context and grossly misused. Look what he says in verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That verse, you may not know this, but that verse has actually been misused, taken out of context, and we've put that verse in many cases um, in Western Christianity kind of on its own. Forgetting that which lies behind, I press on towards the mark. You've heard that before. It's a bumper sticker verse sometimes, whatever the case may be. Let me tell you how some people have used that before. Anyone in here, you don't have to raise your hand. Anybody in here have some significant pain in their background? Anybody in here have like a sin that was committed against you that no matter how hard you try to forgive that person or put that thing behind you, it just seems to have this way of coming up over and over. I don't mean even necessarily, I'm not talking about even like an addiction level sin. I'm talking about the shadow of something that happened to you in your past. Maybe you were abandoned or betrayed or abused, whatever the case may be. You ever ever have that and you just sometimes start to feel, I just can't get out from underneath this thing. Or maybe it is an actual sin you're committed. Whatever the case may be. This verse right here has actually been used by a lot of people in the Christian community, and and I do believe with good intentions, but to say, hey, look, that thing in your past that you're still wrestling with, that thing that happened to you, that abuse from your background, that abandonment, that father that left, whatever the case may be, listen, you don't have to live under that anymore. Just forget what's behind and look forward and press on. And so that verse has actually been taken out of context and used to people that are hurting to say, you don't, you don't need counsel. 
You don't need to go to therapy. You don't need to talk through things. In fact, it's actually sinful to do that because you're refusing to do what Paul's called you to do. You're digging around in things that are in the past. And Jesus died that you might be free of that. So you need to forget all those things in the past and just press on. All you need is Jesus. Now, that's true, right? And it is also true, it is absolutely true, that Jesus Christ died to save us and set us free from every form of sin and every form of difficulty, every form of pain that exists on this earth. It is absolutely true that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are adopted into the family of God, your past does not define you or confine you. But your past did form you. And the experiences that we have in the past do play a part in who we are now. And sometimes there's a place that we need to come to an understanding of what's happened with us before we can even take that thing to Jesus. We have to face it sometimes. And so to take this text and to say, hey, if you're struggling with something, you need to just forget about it, put it out of your mind, and just focus on Jesus can be a way that people just push problems down deeper and deeper and just continues to resurface and it continues to resurface because you've never dealt with it before. In no way here at Heritage are we anti-counseling or therapy. There are good, godly, wise men and women in this very valley, even in this very church, that are so gifted in helping us apply to the gospel to different things that are going on in our life. So if you have been hurt, wounded, abused, listen, God cares about that pain. And the last thing in the world he's trying to tell you to is, you need to just put it out of your mind and forget it. And it's a sin if you keep dwelling. God mourns with those who mourn. It's what we're called to do. That text means nothing. That, 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 that has nothing to do with what Paul's saying. Here's what Paul's saying. If you're in this place and you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, and, and in particular, let me say, if you've been following Jesus for any specific time in your life, let, let's say you've been following Jesus for years. You would identify yourself as a Christian. Maybe you don't even remember a time when you weren't Christian. You know what Paul's saying? What's the context? He just laid out this whole resume. I was this, and I was this, and I was this, and I was this, and I count all these things worthless to know Christ. Then he says, I have not yet obtained this. I haven't considered it, but, but listen, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward for what lies ahead, I press on. This is what Paul's saying. I will not stand and rest on my spiritual accomplishments from yesterday. That's what he's talking about. It's not about wounds of the past. It's about spiritual accomplishment. He's like, I'm not going to just stand on the fact that I know the Bible and that's good enough. I'm just going to now wait for Jesus to come. I'm not going to stop swimming. I don't know Jesus well enough today. I want to know him more. I want to know him more. And I want to know him more. And tomorrow, I'll say today wasn't good enough. I'm not going to stand on that either. I want to press on towards Jesus. I will forget all the things I've accomplished in the past because I want more of Christ. That's what he's saying. World's different, is it not? It's, it's an absolute refusal of self-effort and I can just do this. I'll just turn my back on or whatever. He's saying, no, no, no. I refuse to stand on anything I've ever pulled off. I'm looking to Jesus and I want more. And then look what he says as he moves on. Verse 15, let those of you who are mature think this way. <laughs> How do you define mature Christian? Because Paul's defining this as a mature Christian. And then he has a prayer for those of you that disagree with him. And if anything else you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. If you disagree, God will fix it. If you are mature, think this way. Okay, what, what is the way? What is he thinking? I, I, know, I don't know about you, but I grew up in the church. And so my experience in church and Christianity has changed so many times over the years, but I, I think back, and, and how did I, for the predominant part of my life, define a mature Christian? It was usually in, mature Christians are people who do this, 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 and this, or more specifically, especially when I was in the legalistic Baptist church I grew up in, mature Christians are those who do not do this, 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 and this. That's what I believe mature Christians were. 
And I think somewhere along the line, I assumed, and I think all of us have done this at some point, when I become a mature Christian, I won't struggle with the kind of things I struggle with anymore, and I'll do this and this and this and this, and I won't do this and this and this and this, and I'll be where I need to be. But if you haven't been walking with Jesus very long, let me burst your bubble. For most of us, what we've discovered is, though years go by, we've never gotten to a place where we can say with any honesty, I got it together. And so here's what would happen. I would go to church and I would see these people that I esteemed as spiritual and I always felt second rate. I never felt like I was as mature or as holy or like, it was almost like there was this ranking and I was always down here. And so I'd be talking to people sometimes at church and I'd be like, hey, did you see that movie last night on ABC? And I'd get things like, we don't have a TV in our home. (laughs) And so what would that do in me? I would suddenly feel not as holy, not as spiritual. I like TV. I, I TiVo'd that movie <laughs> to watch again later. And so I would feel like, man, that guy's spiritual. He probably goes home at night, reads his Bible all night, prays, worships. That's probably what he does. And we would get together in this church atmosphere where we all just faked it. And so I'm looking around in church all the time and everybody looks so perfect and everybody looks so polished and it continued to feed this belief that Christian maturity is like, man, look how mature he is. He doesn't do this, he doesn't do this. It was these outward expressions of, who our faith, of what our faith is. But you know what I found as I look back through that life, through the families that we grew up with and all those people that I put on those kind of pedestals? You know what I see when I look back through the history of many of them? Train wrecks. Because the reality that was going on inside, it was what Jesus said even to the Pharisees. Polished on the outside, but on the inside, dead men's bones. And sooner or later, that reek comes out. And so I would see that happen. So what is our definition of maturity? What does a Christian, mature Christian look like? Listen, church. Christianity is not passive. We don't get Jesus when we get saved and now we have enough of him and now we gotta hang on and behave ourselves until the day that he returns. You can never, we will spend eternity exploring the depths of who Jesus is, his majesty and his greatness. A mature Christian is someone who depends more on Jesus today than they did yesterday or 15 years ago. And I never looked at it that way. I would have thought, I may not have even said this because it doesn't sound churchy, but I would have thought a mature Christian doesn't have to lean on Jesus very much anymore because they've got it together. But I think Christian experience in my life and in basically everyone's life in here, whether they want to raise their hand and admit it or not, proves the opposite. What I've learned, the closer I get to Jesus, the more aware I am of my own brokenness and the more I need to lean on him today. I didn't even know how much I needed him when I got him. But I need him more today than ever before. And so, a mature Christian, who's the person we should look to, that we should desire to follow, that we would want to align ourselves with, to to disciple us? And I'm I'm not looking for outward behavior, though I hope those are a byproducts of, but I want a gospel man like Paul, who says, Man, yesterday's accomplishments might be great, but I will not stand on those. I'm gonna forget those things. I'm just gonna keep pressing. I'm not gonna be stagnant. I'm not gonna drift. I'm shooting from mile 156 and I'm not giving up until I get to the end of this river to the day that I stand face to face with Jesus Christ. That's what I want. I mean, it becomes so easy. I can remember seasons in my life where I got all excited about things like Bible prophecy and all this stuff. And, and the whole point of all that is to show us that Jesus Christ is coming again. But in the meantime, I'm not leaning on him. I'm just getting all the info and going, I can't wait till he gets here. But instead, now I realize, like, I need to push. Christian, are you still swimming? Are there places in your life where you've gotten stagnant, where, where the victories of the past have become where you're going to make your stand? There's an incredible quote by Charles Spurgeon, and I'd love for you to look at this and listen to this and let this sink into your very soul. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. I have known, I am sorry to say, some Christians who have by degrees settled upon something other than Christ. Are you resting now? on your years of manifest improvement since conversion? 
loathe the idea of having a righteousness of your own, but grasp with all your faith the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I commend to you, Christians, that you give your whole selves to Christ, that from this day forward you serve him, spirit, soul, and body. For after all, there is nothing worth living for, nothing worth giving a single tear if you lose it, nor worth a smile if you gain it, save only that which comes from Christ and can be used for Christ and is found in Christ. Church, are we settling on the victories of the past? Do we feel like, man, I'm good enough? I don't need to press in anymore. Sometimes it doesn't even happen on purpose. Sometimes you just end up in seasons where you're like, man, I'm just dry. I don't even know how I got here. Paul would say, listen, forget the things that lie behind. Press in. Just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep. Wisdom via Dory. So here's what we're gonna do. We've been doing this a lot lately. We're gonna do it again today. The last thing in the world I wanna do is preach these words. I wanna, I, the last thing I want us to do is look at what Paul is emphasizing here. We just take it, nod, yep, pray, walk out. But what if God called you here, you specifically, not the guy next to you? In these times, we never pray for the person next to us. Deal? You. What if Jesus brought you here today to hear this specific word because he's calling you to something even better? You're at mile 56 instead of mile 156 and he's calling, he's wooing you to a life of worth and value and glory because he is worthy. Maybe today he specifically called you for this very reason. Now look, if that's you, the last thing in the world I want you to do walking out of here is going, yep, that's me, I need to start swimming. And so then we move into this self-effort. Here, here's the bad news about that. There's a way to press in that still leaves Jesus on the outside. I will do this and I will do this and I will do this. But no, what does Paul say in the very last verse that we looked at, verse 16? Only let us hold true to what we have attained. What have we attained? Mercy and grace that we did not deserve or earn. What I'm talking about here is not just like a, while Sam plays music, I'm going to make my list of things I have to do. But I'm talking about reorienting our heart to the beauty of the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. Not a to-do list to take home, a to-done list, if you will, in him. And that as you seek him, as you love him, as you pursue him, I'm fully convinced all these other things will be natural byproducts of a grace-filled relationship that you have with Jesus. You want to grow in understanding of his word? You understand who he is as a person. It will drive you into the word wanting more. You want to do good deeds? Study the gospel and the good deed he has done for us. It will fuel you to serve the world. But if you go do this in your self-effort, a year from now you're going to be in this exact same spot. So this is what I want to do. We're going to bring the house lights down. Sam's going to play some music. And for a few minutes, we're just going to bow our heads and just ask that Christ would again be oriented, if you will, that we would again put him in the place he deserves to be, preeminent over all of our lives. As Spurgeon said, there's nothing in life you can gain that's worth the smile, nothing in life you can lose that's worth the tear compared to who Jesus Christ is. The whole goal is that we gain him. So maybe you're like, well, I've got him, I've had him. Are you stagnant? Have we stopped? Are we resting on the accomplishments of the past? Let us be like Paul. Let us press on. You want to know something interesting? The word he uses in there when he says, I press on, it's the same word he uses in verse 6 when it's translated persecute. And well, how is that? How can that be the case? How can those two words be the same? This is what Paul is saying. Man, I pound I'm beating, I'm pounding. I will fight for Jesus. I will come to my knees for Jesus again. That's where even the passage that Jesus says in Matthew that everybody knows and no one knows what to do with, where he says the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Look, Christ is here. Will you turn to him? Will you reorient? Will you keep swimming and not stand on the laurels of the past? Let's take opportunity to go to him even now. Father, as we come to you, Lord, I pray that you would give us, Lord, conviction of 
laziness, forgetfulness, just the flesh, wanting to stop and just be content. But God, may we pursue you more than we ever have. And Lord, the the only way that that is possible is for us to understand again how amazing and glorious and valuable you are. So God, right now, I pray that your spirit would move in this place and speak to the hearts of the people here. May we again revisit your gospel and understand that you, the King of glory, died on our behalf. May we see where you, the King of glory, are calling us into fellowship with you. I pray, God, you would break down strongholds, even those of self-effort. Lord, may we once again reorient ourselves to you. And Father, may we keep swimming. May we keep pounding. May we keep striving for you, to know you, to be in fellowship with you, to be in relationship with you. Jesus, may you truly be our all in all. Lord, hear us as we pray. In Jesus' name.